the Vietnam War and the push for US involvement was a result of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. A lie. The Iraq War famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? Anton Karras uh, from the third band, the theme song. Um, I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico, live on the fly uh, here at WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WBAI.org. Also, uh, we continue our series here and on our website, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, we have uh, two guests on today that were on the very first year, uh, 2017, they appeared the last two shows of the year, Jesslyn Radak, who was on with Miss Christine Assange, and Thomas Drake, who was on the very last one of that, uh, that season with uh, John Pilger. And so uh, I, every year they seem, or maybe twice a year, uh, we've uh, had conversations about the Assange case. Um, Thomas Drake, by the way, is uh, a, a former senior uh, NSA officer. Uh, a whistleblower, and a recipient of the Sam Adams uh, Award in 2011. And so is Jesslyn Radak. She's the uh, head of Whisper. She is a, a lawyer, an attorney, the premier whistleblower attorney in this country. And like I said, she is a recipient of the Sam Adams Award in 2011. Uh, she defended uh, Tom, and we'll talk about that later on. Uh, that's a lot. We've already burned up three minutes. I just want to mention that on um, on um, Sunday, the third, there there will be a demonstration at Second uh, Avenue and 47th Street in front of the uh, UK Embassy uh, uh, in in Manhattan uh, at 11 a.m. So if you get a chance, drop by there. I will be one of the speakers. I'm coming down all the way from upstate New York just to uh, make an appearance uh, because it's one day before the uh, decision by Judge uh, Vanessa Betasar uh, at the Old Bailey um, in the Assange case. So we continue. The last time I spoke to both of you was March 6th, right after the first half of the, um, of the Assange uh, extradition hearings. It, it, they divided it in half. Second one was September 7th. So I'm going to go to you first, Jesslyn, as a as, a, as an attorney, as an attorney that uh, represents whistleblowers and represents those that are, you know, victims of the Espionage Act, watching this 
process the second time around, you can also throw in the first time around, what was your impression of what these attorneys must have gone through uh, throughout that, uh, both phases actually? It's, I mean, it's amazing to me that, um, that basically attorneys were given so little access to their own client in the middle of a proceeding of such magnitude. And the proceeding itself was really inaccessible to most journalists who were trying to cover it. Not that there were as many journalists covering it as there should have been, but I mean, again, this is very Kafkaesque to have such an important proceeding involving such a high profile individual and to have basically a media blackout that's being aided and abetted by the court. It's astonishing to me. Um, and, and it's really, I, I think, it makes it so clear that this is all about politics and very little to do with justice. Tom, as a defendant, um, as a prior defendant under the Espionage Act, um, which of course went away, but uh, how would, looking at what Assange is going through, put, putting yourself in his shoes, uh, tell me what you, your thoughts are watching this well, process. Yeah, he's very much a political prisoner. And this is all politics. Uh, all of the extra legal attempts to extradite him is simply to bring him back to the United States so they can actually charge him in, in U, under US uh, jurisdiction. See, it, it, but the irony, of course, is they're using what they're claiming is extrajudicial jurisdiction to extradite him from a foreign country. Uh, that makes him a political prisoner. And it's actually one of the things that I think is fundamental to why he should not be extradited, never mind the conditions in which he would find himself if he were found guilty uh, by a jury in the United States. But I, let's not forget when it comes to Assange, uh, the power of the state, in this case, the US state, simply wants to hammer him. They wanna make a prime example of him. Uh, they want to hold him up as precedent. I think this is extraordinary as a pretext to literally in the future, if they're able to prevail with the extradition and to prevail uh, in charging him under the Espionage Act, as well as the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, if it went that far, this would be a, uh, an extraordinary draconian precedent to literally go after any publisher, um, any reporter, any journalist simply because the power of the state, in this case, the US uh, power, decides that we don't like you exposing the wrongdoings and the violations of law that are actually committed by the state. And so it's become, this is clearly was a case in my case, very similar, except involving a publisher with Julian, where it's now a crime against the US state to publish state crimes. Uh, Jesslyn, you're um, familiar with the Espionage Act, the 1917 Espionage Act. You, you represented uh, Snowden, you represented uh, uh, John Kiriakou, you represented Tom Drake. Um, what, what, how does this fit in? Uh, is this an abuse of the Espionage Act? Do you see any, any connection to espionage here? No, obviously the Espionage Act is meant to go after spies 
not whistleblowers, and certainly not journalists. It's an antiquated World War I law. And the, and the reason they're using this, I mean, this law was passed decades before the word classification even came into existence. But the reason they're using it against Assange and Tom Drake and John Kiriakou and a version of it against Chelsea Manning and all the other whistleblowers who've been prosecuted is because it doesn't permit you to raise a defense. You either disclosed information or you didn't. Whether you were selling information to an enemy for profit or whether you were giving information to journalists because of its public interest value doesn't matter at all. And that's the barbarity of using this kind of law, especially on whistleblowers who have acted in the public interest and certainly have received no personal gain for what they've done. Well, uh, uh, Randy. Yes, Tom. It's extraordinarily pernicious. I think it's really critical to emphasize by going after Julian, that opens up the door to go after any publisher, any journalist, any reporter. And what's so pernicious about it is that US-based reporters, I can start naming them, Bart Gelman, Scott, former uh, Scott Shane, uh, James Risen with The Intercept, uh, Bob Woodward, uh, they fall into the same, the same practices of engaging with sources to report on those things that the state doesn't want reported out in the public interest. And so there's no difference here. The only difference in this particular case is that Julian happens to be a non-US citizen, a foreign citizen, and I think they think they can get away with it because it's carte blanche when it comes to foreigners when, from the perspective of the US Department of Justice. Well, uh, I agree with that, Tom. Uh, and uh, both of you uh, actually very you're on point here. I, I wanna ask you about, uh, about the Eastern District of New York people, uh, I mean, of Virginia. People don't realize how difficult that is such a difficult road to hoe for a defendant, particularly of espionage. Can you both, you first, Jesslyn, uh, give us your thoughts on that, and then Tom? Part of the reason I think Tom Drake is a free man is because his proceeding occurred in Maryland. But the Eastern District of Virginia is the most conservative court in the United States. And it's not a mystery why the U.S. has tried to bring all of these cases before the Eastern District, because it is so draconian and so conservative and so hostile to, to the press and to people who are whistleblowers and trying to inform the public. That's why they selectively prosecute people in Eastern District of Virginia, all of these cases. Um, and also it has allowed these cases to go forward um, in tremendous secrecy, even at proceedings for other people being prosecuted in a similar way to Assange, even attorneys had trouble getting in. And I have no doubt that if Assange ended up before the Eastern District of Virginia, it would be shrouded in secrecy. Um, it would be a huge problem to try to get public access to what's going on. And the, the punishment would be swift and draconian. 
Tom, your thoughts? Well, it, it's brought, let's just say it's triggered a lot of flashbacks to really cut right to the chase uh, in terms of my own case. Uh, I mean, I was charged under the Espionage Act, uh, so is Julian. In the, in the end, uh, at the very end, I ultimately pled out uh, where they dropped all the Espionage Act charges, but I did plead out to a single count under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. That's actually uh, count two in the superseding indictment against Assange. It's actually a very convenient uh, uh, straw count because uh, I can tell you, again, this is routine practice by reporters uh, and journalists when they're engaging in a source that has access to national security information, whether it's classified or not, uh, you're gonna have a relationship, whether it's anonymous or known. And the fact that Julian was allegedly cooperating with sources is, is actually standard practice by journalists and reporters. It's important to note that even under the, es the Espionage Act charges, there's a whole boatload of Espionage Act charges against them in the superseding indictment. Those are for the, the quote unquote publishing of information that was also published by US media outlets. You just got to go all the way back to the collateral murder video, go back to all of the war logs uh, in terms of Afghanistan and, and Iraq, uh, the number of you know, the, the revelations about people that were tortured, thousands and thousands that were tortured that were known within the system but were never publicized until WikiLeaks made it public. Here's the kicker though, Randy. If Assange is extradited, once he's on U.S. soil, he does have the rights of a U.S. person, just like me as a U.S. citizen. However, they're going to strip him right away of all those rights. Why? Because what he's been charged with, just like I was charged, are strict liability laws. There is no public interest defense whatsoever. And if my case is any precedent at all, all the proceedings are going to be sealed away from the public away from reporters and journalists. Uh, Justin, can you, uh, as a lawyer, uh, elaborate on what the public interest defense is? A public interest defense would allow a defendant to explain why, what their intent was, why they leaked, that this was, for example, secret information that was actually illegal activity by the government, such as war crimes or secret domestic surveillance or torture, and that that information was improperly marked classified in order to hide it from the public, but that is very much in the public interest to know, especially because it's unconstitutional, illegal, and and demonstrates all sorts of abuse by the government. Um, but by taking away the ability to defend yourself, I, I mean, it, it's unlike any other crime. Every criminal crime has an intent element because it matters if you planned out a, a murder of someone or if it was spontaneous or if it was in self-defense or if it was in the heat of the moment. That's the reason we look at levels of intent. But under the Espionage Act, we can't look at the good intent of Julian Assange or anyone else who has been charged under it. This is Randy Critical, Randy Critical, live on the fly here on 99.FM in New York City. 
uh, WBAI, WBAI.org, uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. This is our fifth season. I, um, I got to tell you something. Uh, it, it, when we started this five years ago, Tom, all right, uh, actually four years ago, uh, it, I thought there was a more than a ray of hope. It's gotten worse. What I mean, who is behind all of this? Who's who really wants to see Assange go down, Tom? What well, I think there's I think there's key elements, and this is bipartisan in terms of Democrats, Republicans, and in between, who take great exception to anybody daring expose. Uh, the raw power when it's used and abused uh, by the U.S. national security establishment, what some have referred to as the deep state, and I'll say the so-called air quotes, uh, the so-called yeah. deep state. Right. Uh, those that are in that the national security establishment um, are usually, you know, long-term civilians, career civilians, and one of the jokes. Speaking of a joke. Um, <laughs> as serious as we are with this conversation regarding what Julian Assange faces um, and the prospects and uh, what he faces if he were extradited, is that in the national security establishment, it, when I was at NSA, it was, you would hear this, politicians come and go, but we're still here. Presidents come and go, but we're still here. Um, and so if you, you have to put into the context of the National Security Act of 1947, which ostensibly was created so we would never again have an electronic Pearl Harbor. But what it also created under the cover of the Cold War was if the, the classification system in national defense information that was considered sensitive, um, even if it wasn't classified, if you released it outside of those channels, the internal channels, then you were potentially exposing yourself. And of course, that's what happened to Ellsberg. Well, um, I uh, wanna ask you now, uh, Jesslyn, not that, but ask you about why hasn't the media, Tom and I talked about this yesterday, but um, you can give us your thoughts. Why hasn't the media circled the wagons around Julian Assange? Because don't they, in the end, uh, aren't they vulnerable to the same kind of uh, onslaught uh, that Julian Assange has received? Absolutely. Um, I mean, that was the reason that President Obama and Eric Holder ultimately decided not to go after Assange in the end, not to prosecute him, because they knew it would put at risk the New York Times and The Guardian and all of the other papers that have published in tandem with Julian Assange and with WikiLeaks. But when you had Jeff Sessions, who was Trump's attorney general come in, he was all about plugging leaks. The president hates leaks, even though he's a very leaky person himself. Um, and using the Espionage Act to go after these people, basically they were kind of dusting off a number of older cases, as well as bringing new ones and tripling the number of leak investigations that had occurred over the preceding eight years, which is frightening. Um, and why are they doing this? Because this is a way to shut down information that is embarrassing to the US government. One of the common denominators in these leaks is that they have been to the press and it's been of information the government wants to keep secret, often that evidences illegality um, and that 
often has been very embarrassing for the United States. Tom, what do you expect on um, Monday in that courtroom in, uh, at the Old Bailey? What do you expect that judge to do? And who is uh, pulling her strings? Uh, I mean, you're talking about a very close relationship between the United States and the UK, uh, which goes back decades. And there is clearly um, a you know handshake agreement, to say it that way, um, between the US and the UK. Uh, obviously, UK national security establishment uh, doesn't like Julian either. I mean, all you have to do is see what they did with The Guardian uh, to understand what their response was under the official Secret Secrets Act. Um, here, there is clearly a cooperative uh, behavior that's happening. Uh, the issue, though, is that he is he's not a U.S. citizen. Uh, and there are restrictions against extradition uh, if it involves, uh, if it's, you know, political. You can't use uh, a political uh, pretext or political cover uh, as an excuse to actually extradite somebody. Um, and so that does provide him some protection. The concern I have is it is not going to matter. Um, after almost, you know, we're talking almost 10 years uh, that he's been uh, controlled either in the embassy, in Belmarsh uh, prison, uh, and even before uh, when he was under, uh, you know, he was essentially detained because he had to report in. Um, with an you had an ankle bracelet on. Um, after all these years, I think that they simply just want to continue to exercise their power to uh, make life as difficult as possible for him, which I actually going to just say this in plain language, that it's a crime against Assange's own humanity. And I would add to that, to what Tom is saying, what Tom is talking about is something called punishment by process. And the fact that he is just, regardless even of what happens with, what even whatever happens with the extradition decision, I presume it is going to be appealed by whatever side loses that decision. And that will just add another perhaps year of proceedings, another year that Julian is going to be imprisoned in some kind of way and he hasn't been found guilty of anything. So the process becomes punitive as it has been almost for the last decade where he had to be confined in an embassy to enjoy his human right of asylum. This is just further punishment by process. And in a way, I think they're happy for him to die behind bars. I think they're happy to just drag this out um, despite all the health concerns and problems that he's having. Um, because again, the process becomes a punishment regardless of what eventually happens in a courtroom. Uh, this reminds me, Randy, of just stripping him of his his own humanity. I mean, it, it, that's what this is. In the end, is is it does because that state power. It's literally state power exercising um, its ability to make life extraordinarily difficult uh, for you. And they they have been targeting him for quite some time. We just have a few minutes left here. Um, at this point, I believe that the judge is not going to rule in his favor. I think everybody believes that it's already been pre-written 
uh, and she's going to go with the flow, go along to get along. Uh, I mean, I'm, I know I'm a cynic, but that's just the way just reading the tea leaves here and, and her past performance. What, what uh, we, we're relying then on Donald Trump giving a pardon in the next uh, minute, both of you, the idea of Trump giving a pardon, is there a chance of him giving a pardon? And if not, then what? Jocelyn? I would like, I would hope that he would, but right now he seems very intent on giving pardons to his cronies and allies and funders and potentially family and even himself. And I feel like because Julian is so polarized and has been turned into this political hot potato that I, I'm not sure what interest Trump as Trump, unless he sees it as a benefit to him, I'm not sure why else he would do that. I hope he would, but I, I just, I, I wish I could be more optimistic. Utah? I think it's, I think it would be, if there is any chance at all, based on sticking it to the so-called deep state, it would be last minute. The thing is, remember, it's the Trump administration that actually brought the charges against Assange. It was not Obama. And so by bringing, bringing those charges, he would have to admit that he was actually in error. The last thing Trump's going to do is admit error. And his own, his own hand-picked political appointees, his sycophants, uh, are not in favor, just not. Many, a number of them have come out, including uh, Richard Grinnell, uh, who for, was, you know, acting head of the NDI of National Defense. I mean, sorry, the National Intelligence. Um, he himself is is not in favor of it. And so, uh, why would he go back on something? Because remember, I think there was an attempt at a quid pro quo, and when Assange was in an extraordinarily vulnerable place. And it is clear that they were attempting to compromise them and they were unable to do so. Okay, Tom, that was great. Uh, we're gonna take a, a quick break and continue uh, this discussion with uh, Thomas Drake and with Justin Raddick. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guy lost. Everybody knows that the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the Captain Line. Everybody got this broken feeling like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem roll. Everybody knows. We're back. Randy Credico, Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. We've been talking uh, with uh, Thomas Drake, a former NSA uh, senior official officer, and Justin Raddock, the foremost, the foremost whistleblower attorney in the country. Would you agree with that, Tom? Is she not the best? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, extraordinary. Uh, 
her indefatigable defense of me, as well as a number of other whistleblowers, some that are known publicly, some that aren't, uh, because it's been whistleblowers charged with the most egregious of crimes that she's actually represented, including myself. And, you know, we, we have now those charged under the Trump administration, like Daniel Hale and Reality Winner. Uh, Hale's facing many, many years in prison, and Reality Winner uh, is in, still in prison. Um, and uh, she's represented uh, and supported and has advocated uh, for those who dare speak truth to power or have released information that was clearly in the public interest. And it's certainly not easy given that she herself was uh, a whistleblower. In fact, I consider her the pioneering post 9-11 whistleblower uh, during the epigenesis events that led to the, uh, the global uh, torture regime. Um, of the United States. Well, that's great. Let me ask you, how did you meet uh, Tom Drake, uh, Jesslyn? Uh, how did you find out about his story? And what did you do when you saw his story? I heard about his story. I read something about it. And immediately I was alarmed because as someone who had been investigated for a media leak, I was alarmed that suddenly someone was being criminally charged for leaking to the media and for leaking information that appeared to be in the public interest. So I wrote an op-ed for the LA Times about the difference between leaking and whistleblowing. And it was sort of like my throwing breadcrumbs out into the universe um, and luckily Tom it may have been Tom's mother. One of them read it and got in contact with me. And then I was able to talk to him about my own experiences of being under a criminal investigation for leaking and what I might do to be able to support his case. Well, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, I read uh, Jay Mayer's article. I've known Tom for a while. I know his story. Uh, he's a hero. He's a, you know, he's a, he was exposing stuff. Un, it was it was uh, not classified stuff. He was just giving information to the Baltimore Sun on what was waste and abuse of power. Uh, you know, someone uh, from Yale, I forgot his name, a Yale law professor. Yes. Uh, Jack Balkan said we are witnessing the bipartisan normalization of the legitimization of a national surveillance state. And this is what Tom was exposing uh, Tom, Tom, you are a hero. I mean, if you didn't do that, Tom, if you had not done that, uh, would you have been able to live with yourself? No, I mean, it's look, we all have moral agency. And I was certainly faced with the prospect of remaining silent and not saying anything, or I could choose to blow the whistle. And I certainly didn't, you know, wake up uh, one morning and say, hey, today is the day that I'm going to turn myself into a whistleblower and then go out and, you know, look for the biggest whistle I could find to blow. I mean, that's that's not what a, a typical whistleblower is going to do. Uh, I, let's just say that whistleblowing is, would not be a normal uh, career choice. I remember, just as a side note, I don't remember seeing whistleblower as one of those things you aspire to uh, in the, when I was looking through the pamphlet that the guidance counselor gave me in high school, all right, it's like, wow, I can't wait to grow up and become a whistleblower. Uh, whistleblowers, um, 
have had extraordinarily difficult road um, to hoe uh, in terms of US history. They're often considered snitches. They're often uh, considered rats. Rats. They're often considered um, you know, people that spoke out when they shouldn't have or should have kept silent. I could not remain silent, but I was certainly aware of his, the history of whistleblowing. And in particular, uh, growing up as a very young teenager uh, in the 1970s, I was more than aware uh, because that was my own civic awakening, more than aware of what had happened to Daniel Ellsberg facing 115 years in prison. And so I knew that given that I was blowing the whistle at first internally, and then ultimately going to the press, I knew that by going to the press that I was touching you know, the third rail. And it could not only mean it could mean the end of my career, I could end up with the same fate as Ellsberg. But here's the kicker. I knew that I would have to find some way once I was charged. Remember, it took multiple years. I was under sort of the, the, the sword of Damocles for a number of years waiting for it to drop from, uh, from the period of 2006. Uh, and it wasn't until 2010 that I was actually charged. And of course, it was made very public. I knew I would have to find a way of taking my case into the court of public opinion. I did, wasn't sure at that time though, how that would manifest. And would there be anybody willing to represent me? And that's when I actually read the LA Times uh, a piece by Jesslyn just a few days after I was so publicly charged by the DOJ. Uh, and then I realized, wow, she gets it. Wow. And uh, so what happened? You. Uh... He contacted you, Jesslyn, and uh, I think his his mom contacted me, and I said, uh, "Your son needs to contact me directly um, if he's interested in talking about the legal issues." And so um, he did, and you know, I talked about my own experience I had gone through, and I talked about how. I felt like his case was the government really crossing a Rubicon because it always hated whistleblowers, but not. this is the first time they were going in many years, in decades since Ellsberg, that they were going to prosecute one and not only do that, but do it under the Espionage Act, which set off alarm bells. And so you know, I started strategizing with Tom about how there needed to be a lot more public attention on what was going on because it was a very toxic trend that the government was starting. Well, Tom went through the channels. Tom went through the, norm, the channels that you're supposed to go through, but there was no satisfaction there. Uh, and I think uh, Snowden said uh, that uh, it's because of Tom's case that he decided uh, to do it his way. That's exactly right. He saw Tom go through every conceivable internal channel. He went to his boss, the, his, his supervisor, his boss, his boss's boss, the inspector general, the House and Senate intelligence committees. I mean, every place you're supposed to go. And not only did they fail to redress his concern, but they ended up actually targeting him. So, I mean, it was entra almost entrapment, but basically the people you go to, instead of investigating and, and punishing the wrongdoers, they go after the person who raised the problem. And we've seen that over and over again, but 
but Snowden had seen what Tom went through, went through all the internal channels and ended up being prosecuted for espionage. And so Snowden went to directly to the press. And so that's a good consequence of what happened, because if he tried to do that in the U.S., it would have never come out. All of these different um, uh, programs that the NSA was using wouldn't have come out if he had gone through the norm, had, had followed Tom's lead and gone his way rather than saying, all right, I'm going to use this and, and go a different route. Uh, Correct. I, I want a little known fact. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 I'm, I'm done. No, it's a little known fact about my case. And I think it's important to note. And this is why it's it, it, it was so foundational to remember, I was the first person under Obama that was I was the signature espionage act case. So that's a fact. What's little known is um, the, the, I, the reason they went after me it was not because of the billions in waste. It wasn't because of the 9-11 intelligence failures, which were numerous. We, we never should have had 9-11 occur at all. Uh, the warnings were deafening, but, but we had gone deaf uh, in even hearing them. Uh, and that's a whole nother, a whole nother uh, subject in itself, a whole nother story in itself that's actually quite complex as to why in terms of culture and dynamics. The real reason they came after me is they actually thought, they really thought that I was the prime source for the blockbuster New York Times article that came out in December of 2005, revealing for the first time the existence of what was then referred to as the warrantless wiretapping program. I remember yeah. that's what I was confronted by within just days and weeks post 9-11 and went through every channel. That's why they really came after me because that was approved by the president in the deepest of state secrecy. And the last thing they wanted was the American public, let alone anybody else, let alone anybody else even in the intelligence community, knowing that the president of the United States had literally said the constitution didn't matter, the fourth amendment didn't matter, and that the, the NSA and others could actually take the raw power of the state and treat the United States just like a foreign nation for the purposes of electronic surveillance. Because, oh my gosh, you know, we failed, but you can't admit the failure, so we need all these authorities. And so they gave themselves extra legal authority to bypass and simply discard and subvert the Constitution. That's why they came after me, especially when that New York Times are. I was, all, I was clearly gonna be part of a target list. I knew that. I had yet to go to any reporter or, or any publisher or any journalist at that point in time because I knew what, what, what was at stake, but I certainly made a fateful choice to do so uh. in the public interest, knowing that doing so, I was on a path that could result in some very serious consequences to not just my career, but my life. Wow. Jesslyn, um, so when uh, that's an amazing case, and uh, I, I want to know, um, you got involved in that, but you've been involved in so many cases. What attracts you uh, to the, to whistleblowers? What is it that that drives you in that direction? Uh, you know, some lawyers deal with civil rights cases, murder cases. You've made uh, you you're kind of obs not obsessed, but you certainly uh, have a keen interest in in whistleblowers and defending them. Tell us why. Because I was a whistleblower. And when I blew the whistle on basically 
the American military torturing someone who was an American, I got the full blowback. I was put under criminal investigation. I was referred to the state bars in which I was licensed. I was put on the no-fly list and, you know, and, and I was accused, but never officially charged. But it, it just is such a cloud over your life, even just being under investigation. And I said, when this is all over, I'm going to like dedicate the rest of my life to defending whistleblowers because I could see what the full force of the entire executive branch coming down on your head felt like. And I also felt like, okay, my case is sort of a test bed. It's just like they're dabbling with how to go after leakers. They haven't figured out an angle, but they're trying to. And they couldn't come up with a crime because there wasn't a crime called leaking. But then, I mean, I think because of my case and that of Sibel Edmonds and other whistleblowers they were going after, they ended up like honing in on the Espionage Act. But my my life work in representing whistleblowers stems from my own experience in being one and knowing how you're gonna get caricatured as being all these parade of horribles. I mean, it still goes on today. I still have people on the internet that are saying she can't be trusted and she works for the CIA and just- I, I know, I've seen some of that noise. It's, it's complete garbage. I, I think uh, you are uh, really heroic and I, I think you've done such a tremendous public service. As a whistleblower, uh, Nils Melzer, who was on a couple of weeks ago, said uh, it is heroic and selfless uh, act to blow the whistle at significant personal risk. He says it was it is heroic and selfless talking about people like yourself, Tom Drake. Uh, Kiriaku um, and uh, Manning and everybody else. It is a selfless heroic act. You, I guess you subscribe to that, Tom. Well, yes, uh, but speaking truth to power has enormous consequences. I certainly own the consequences. I mean, if you're talking about those, I mean, Daniel Hale right now, uh, because he allegedly had gone to the press regarding the drone program, uh, he's facing many, many years in prison. And although his, his uh, trial has been postponed several times, in part because of COVID, um, you know, his, future, his future is, like I faced, is, is bleak, right? Um, and it looks like it's going to be under Biden, uh, if, assuming the DOJ continues to go forward. Remember, this is the bipartisan fair. Then you have reality winner. So I just want to, it's really critical because I was a signature Espionage Act case under Obama. Reality winner is the signature Espionage Act case under Trump. Why not only is she, was, she ends up incarcerated, right? Uh, it's basically the, of, other than Chelsea Manning, which was in a military court martial, she's received the longest sentence of any of, any of those that were facing Espionage Act. Yeah. Um, and we're talking six You've been very years. critical six. of how that happened. Uh, well, no, that. because see, it's inversely proportional. I'm going to state for the record right here with your audience and those that will ultimately be listening to this program, the degree to which the state goes after you with their power to punish you, to suppress you, to silence you is, is inversely proportional to what you exposed or revealed. 
in the public interest. What did she expose? She exposed direct foreign interference in the, ele in the election system, the very, uh, the very infrastructure of the election system in 2016. And they put her behind bars for it. Well, she happened to contradict the now president of the United States. And to me, that was her, her original sin. And she has been punished more harshly. I mean, she got twice the amount of time of any whistleblower before her. It's astonishing. I mean, she was sentenced to more than five years in jail. Uh, she is still incarcerated. She is a political prisoner, um, a very, one of the most principled people I've, I've ever gotten to know. And I, it's, it's a travesty. I mean, I do hope that either Trump or more likely Biden would give her a full pardon. She's exactly the kind of person you would want being a public servant and being in the military. Um, and she just happened to blow the whistle on something the president of the United States was lying about and continues to lie about. In fact, the document that she's in jail for supposedly revealing ended up being presented during the impeachment inquiry of Donald Trump. So the public has seen it now. Everyone has seen it. The government I mean, has been used in his impeachment. So why is she still in jail? And she has had to endure horrible consequences. I mean, from the beginning and not being offered bail to the horrible conditions of confinement that for her were not originally in a federal prison, but a local squalid jail in, with no access to her family, no access to the medical care she needs for some of her underlying um, conditions, which are quite serious. And she's still in there and, and got COVID on top of having underlying medical vulnerabilities. It's just been obscene and painful and, and a horrific miscarriage of justice. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I, uh, Tom, um, we talked about this uh, earlier. You brought it up that, you know, Trump went after her. It was a vindictive move. Uh, the Justice Department, he's orchestrating it. And the same thing with Assange, Tom. He, can you go into uh, what uh, Assange wouldn't do for Trump, which actually led to the intense, intensive vacation of, of the uh, spying on on uh, on Assange and the ultimate uh, prosecution. Yeah, leaving all the disinfo and propaganda aside, and unfortunately, there's a lot of it, and a lot of it's character assassination, just like I uh, experienced, in ways of stripping you of of who you are and your own person, because they want to distract, of course, from what was actually, in this case, published in the public interest, in this case, by Julian through WikiLeaks. Um, he's, he's being punished because he wouldn't play along with Trump. I mean, this is one of the grand ironies. And even though there's people that, that want him punished, this is again, the bipartisan fair uh, in terms of Julian and why he doesn't have the support he really should have, even though I'm noticing you know, key reporters are now coming out in his defense, 
and I'm I'm hoping it's it's enough. Although some say it's you know a little a bit a little bit on the late side. Yeah, he didn't cooperate. He didn't play the quid pro quo. He wasn't going to compromise his principles as a publisher just because Trump was dangling, and this is what he's been doing, dangling a pardon as long as you play my game, dangling a pardon as long as you cover for me, dangling a pardon as long as you lie for me. He wasn't going to do that. And so now, in essence, Trump went after him to punish him for not cooperating clearly and in a cover-up of Trump's uh, own actions with his his you know his his own cohorts. And, and so um, now he's for two years now, two years he's been locked up. And a year prior to that, he had very little access to uh, internet and signal and all of that. Uh, so like three years he's been totally mummified. Uh, Jesslyn, if he were operating right now, one of the cases he would be focused on would be the case of Daniel Hale. Can you tell the people out there who are not aware of this case? I'm aware of it, but, you know, it's an, a, an amazing story and people should read about Daniel Hale. Give us the encapsulated view uh, uh, or version of, of his uh, troubles right now. Well, Daniel Hale had been in the Air Force and served honorably, no problems there. And right now he stands accused, accused of providing information to a journalist widely recognized to be Jeremy Scahill. I mean, they talk about it in a very oblique way in the indictment, but a journalist who worked for The Intercept who published an article on this day, but providing sources about the very secretive drone program. And at this point, Daniel has, you know, in his initial appearance, pled not guilty And that's why I'm talking about all of these are allegations at this point. But if these allegations are true, they are saying Daniel basically revealed inaccurate targeting by the drone program and the killing of innocent civilians by the drone program and misreporting by the government on innocent civilian casualties. These are things that are definitely in the public interest to know, especially because the United States has greatly understated the number of innocent civilians who've been assassinated by drones. Um, Yet he has been charged under the Espionage Act and is facing 50 years in jail. Um, His case, some have called the WikiLeaks warm-up case because it's under Trump and it would proceed or kind of lay more groundwork and precedent that would be used to go after Julian Assange. Um, And yes, if Assange were able to speak right now, he would be one of the loudest voices out there advocating for why, for example, reality winner should be pardoned and why the charges against Daniel Hale should be dropped. And without his voice, it, it makes it very hard to get any traction on these stories. The government's going to do everything to keep this secret and hushed up. But now without having a voice like Julian's, 
who who was bravely willing to cover these stories and was willing to take a risk and didn't care if he invoked the wrath of the U.S. government because transparency about matters of public import tr trumped were more important than all of these secrecy mechanisms. So again, it's another area where Julian's voice is uh, just sorely missing. And the voice of the media in general, I appreciate you even talking about reality winner's case and Daniel Hale's case, because these are two kids who honorably served their country and saw stuff that was uh, very arguably illegal, constitutionally questionable, and did what the First Amendment allows them to do, which was go to the press. They're and all allegations right now. Um, but we do know that he did where he was in the Air Force. He was in uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, I had no idea he, he was working. The NSA was part of that uh, drone. I didn't know that uh, back in 2000. Tom, did you know about that, that the NSA was involved in the drone strikes? I didn't know. Yeah, there's a whole, I mean, that's part of the, you know, military intelligence complex. Uh, the old joke was, you know, we, we uh, you know, we find them, you whack them. Um, it's part of providing intelligence, targeting intelligence uh, to the military operators and, and including CIA. I mean, this is part of the secret uh, American empire warfare that's been ongoing uh, since post 9-11. Uh, and we've spent umpteen trillions um, sustaining and expanding it. Uh, Trump has actually expanded secret war, war way beyond even what Obama had expanded uh, from Bush. And people thought that Obama was actually going to roll back um, the, the excesses of the Bush administration. Uh, he actually didn't. Uh, if anything, what ba Obama did was actually, as part of his legacy, was putting in what I, what I can only call an extra legal uh, framework uh, upon which uh, Trump has certainly taken full advantage of it. And this is also the larger concern. Um, it didn't start with Trump. It actually started way before Trump. Uh, but the, the continuum of continuing to go after those who expose power at risk um, and share it with the public through reporters and journalists and the media uh, is crucial, uh, in not only in the defense of a democracy, but also in terms of just free speech, uh, because there's a whole lot that's being done in the name of power um, against others. Uh, that is just absolutely egregious and pathological. And ultimately that's the abuse of power is pathological. Uh, Justin, uh, Tom said uh, in one of these articles, the one by Jane Meyer uh, in the New Yorker that uh, you know, Obama, a lot of prosecutions under the Espionage Act uh, made, actually made Nixon administration look like a group of pikers. Uh, and so, and then now, you know, people say, well, it was worse under Obama, but Trump is just as bad as Obama. Trump was, had already exceeded Obama when Trump had only been in office for two years. So yes, and Trump has been even worse than Obama. And I don't give Obama a pass at all because he's the one who created all of this horrific 
precedent that that Trump is using. And during the Obama administration, we used to say, what will this power look like in the hands of someone we don't trust? Because Obama was a trust me president, I, I'm trustworthy. And now you have Trump who is arguably unhinged in many areas. And, and this is what this power looks like record number of people being prosecuted and investigated under the Espionage Act, record long draconian sentences. There are a number of people you have not even heard of like Terry Albury, other people who, there are a number of people, some of them I can't even say their names right now because of secrecy agreements I'm bound to, but who are being investigated, who are, being teed up for prosecution. And it makes it extraordinarily difficult to shine light on these cases. All sorts of classifications, secrecy agreements, things are tried behind closed doors. Things are already very secretive and you're talking about an administration that's been very locked down and very willing to punish people, including journalists who reveal information, even if it's part of their job and even if it's in the public interest. I think it has created a very chilling atmosphere for people like me who do human rights law and whistleblower law. Um, it definitely creates a chill. It definitely makes it even harder just to do day-to-day -day work. Tom, uh, I wanna go back for a minute uh, on the uh, Daniel Hale case. Uh, yeah, he, he was in the Air Force, you were in the Air Force. Uh, he was under pressure to do things that, you know, were unthinkable, you know, just, um, you know, reprehensible, I suppose, to him. Uh, did he do the right thing, Tom? Yes, he did, but he's paying an enormous price for it. And I certainly, you know, I'm concerned about his own future. Uh, fortunately, there are people like Jocelyn and others who are defending him against the enormity of the power that's held by uh, the executive in the United States. It's quite a thing. I mean, when you're going up against that kind of a power, but yet he was in the Air Force. And there is a thing when you're in the Air Force uh, called the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And there's an Article 92. And Article 92 actually came out of the Nuremberg trials that you cannot use the excuse of just following orders as cover for your own actions. Because that's what the German high command and, and the senior officers kept using as justification uh, for their war crimes. But apparently, if you're the United States, you get a get out of history free card because it's American exceptionalism. So under the cover and under the rubric of American exceptionalism, a whole lot of stuff has gone down, including uh, the very things that uh, allegedly Daniel Hill exposed by going to the press. It's the enormity of the crimes against humanity committed by the United States is extraordinarily enormous. And yet it's now become a crime against the state to reveal the crimes of state. And that's where we actually find ourselves uh, today. And it really concerns me because the trend lines are not good. They really aren't. And I let there be no illusion about going into um, a Biden administration. The need for whistleblowers 
will be just as great under Biden as they were under Trump, as they were under Obama, as they were under Bush, if not even more so. Um, I, I fear that, um, that they're going to continue uh, accelerating the war on whistleblowers, even under Biden. Uh, I don't like what I'm seeing uh, in the foreign uh, uh, establishment uh, in his administration. I don't like uh, what I'm seeing people being appointed to his cabinet right now. I know it's diverse, but not diverse politically. Maybe there are women in there, people of color there, but uh, you know, there are too many company people at least that's well, the, assessment. There's very little disagreement when it comes to national security affairs, and it's particularly when it's the power of the United States exercising them. That's where you actually have the bipartisan support that is, is extraordinarily deep. And that's my biggest concern. Yeah, well, uh, I must say, I'm, I, I'm reading this uh, going back to... Um, that article on you, and, and you say that there's a corporate partnership uh, with the government that has transformed the counterterrorism industry into a powerful lobbying force. Do you agree with that, uh, Jesslyn? I do agree. Tom can speak even more to that because he, as being with one of those agencies that outsourced a lot of this stuff. He can talk about the partnerships with corporations and it happens all the time now. And the fluidity with which people, employees go back and forth between, between defense contractors and the government. I mean, if you look at the people who are the talking heads now, a lot of them had been in government and now they are on the boards of or working directly for some of the biggest defense contractors in the country. It's an incestuous relationship. And Tom can elaborate even more. Would you, Tom? Well, yeah, I go back to, you know, Dwight, Dwight D. Eisenhower in his farewell address, you know, before the age of Camelot and Kennedy. He warned the nation in, in no, no uncertain terms about the power of the military industrial complex and he was the one that presided over it in the 1950s. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against 
the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. It has enormous reach and enormous uh, power over decisions that are being made in the halls of power. And that in obviously includes Congress. You know, there's all kinds of tricks of the trade they use, which have become highly normalized. I was very much a part of that system. I'm very much aware of what happens uh, when you have this incestuous relationship uh, between companies um, and, and the government and people slide back and forth between them. And I'm seeing too much of that uh, based on who's been put forward as nominees, even under the Biden administration. Now, having said that, they're clearly the people that have been selected. Yeah, they're, they're competent. The question will be, are they gonna play the same coin, the coin of the realm here in terms of national security, whether it's neoconservatism or whether it's neoliberalism, right? And I'm going back decades, right? In all of its manifestations, does it ultimately end up, we end up getting the same thing when we invest in that, that same coin uh, and when it is spent uh, to support American exceptionalism? That, that is my concern. and. You know, it's we ultimately have to. We all this is comes back to the citizenry. We have to come back to what kind of future do we want? What kind of future uh, do we wish to create? And if history's any guide, right? It's not kind. It is not kind. We have just a few minutes left here. I want to um, get first of all, getting back to Daniel Hale. How do people help him? How do they become aware? Is there a website that focuses on Daniel Hale's predicament? Um, there is one, I think I had sent you the link for it. You might be able to put up. I don't have it in front of me. We'll put that um, up. Yeah, there is. You can find updates on him through my organization, exposedfacts.org. We have information on his case. A lot of the case is transpiring in secret conditions, which makes it different, difficult to get out information about it, um, but, but demanding information about these cases, trying to follow them the best you can um, is what I recommend. And once I find, if there's any way to make more information public, I will. Um, is he being held without bail? Is he, is he? Uh... No, he's, he's, he's at home right now, um, luckily. Is there a defense fund? Is there a defense fund for Mr. Hale? There, there is, and I will. I can send you the links later on um, if you want to put them up. Yes, he's being defended by public defenders, um, but yes, there is a Daniel Hale support fund out there um, that people can definitely contribute to. I'm going to have to, unfortunately, run, <laughs> drop off. All right. Uh, well, listen, well, I'm. Thank uh, you. We're we're, we're going to run uh, right now. Uh, I want to thank both of you. Any closing thoughts about? Julian Assange, uh, before we go, and then that'll be it. Julian Assange should should not be extradited, and I am gravely concerned about him. Um, if if he is, you know, extradited, I hope I hope that the courts will realize that this is completely politicized, which goes against a reason for extraditing someone. You can't do it 
if it's for politics, you can't do it if they have health conditions and both of those are present in Julian Assange's case. Final thoughts, Tom? Extraordinarily dangerous if Julian Assange has actually extradited the United States and once he's in the United States, let's assume he ends, he ends up in prison for a long, long time. Why? Because it now means that what we know as a free press anywhere or the ability to disclose in the public interest through reporters, journalists, and media outlets is at extraordinary risk. And the very thing that, that Ellsberg himself feared could happen in the future, as I have said in the past myself publicly, could very well come, come to fruition. All right, well, that's the final word. I wanna thank both you, Jesslyn Raddick, and I wanna thank you, Thomas Drake, uh, for all of the work that you've done. Uh, you are real patriots, and I, I hope more people uh, follow you and uh, follow your lead, emulate uh, the kind of bravery and heroism that uh, you've exuded and you've um, exhibited uh, over the last couple of decades. Thank you very much uh, for your service, uh, doing good things, and for your support of Assange, of course, and everybody else that is under the, under the cloud of the Espionage Act and government repression. I'm Randy Credico. Uh, that'll do it uh, uh, for this show, Assange Countdown uh, to Freedom, Episode 6, the last one of 2020. I'm glad the year's over. Hopefully next year will be a better year. Uh, we're going to go out with uh, Johnny Rivers and Secret Agent Man. Why not? There's a man who leads a life of danger To everyone he meets He stays a stranger Every move he makes, another chance he takes. The odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. Secret agent man, secret agent man. They've given you a number, hadn't taken away your name. That you find. A pretty face can hide an evil mind. But be careful what you say, or you'll give yourself away. The odds are you won't live to see tomorrow. Secret agent man, secret agent man, they've given you. Taking away your